HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And I would like to read you um, a little piece today to get your, get your brains going. All right. To a stranger, New York must seem to be perpetually engaged in eating. Go where you will between the hours of 8 in the morning and 6 in the evening, and you're reminded that man is a cooking animal. Tables are always spread. Knives and forks are always rattling against dishes. The odors of the kitchen are always rising. One wonders, even in this great city, how it can support so many eating houses. Hmm. I wish I had the sound of plates and knives and forks and glasses clattering in the background, because certainly that does describe New York City today. But interestingly enough, that was written by a journalist, Junius Henry Brown, in eight. 1869, and it's so true even today. But why was he interested in 1869 to to write that and and so surprised? Well, what little people the the fact that that few people know is that the first restaurant did not open in New York City until 1830, and it, by 1847 there were only a hundred, or there were as many as 100. By the time he wrote that article in 1860, there were five to 6,000 restaurants. I mean, they just took off like wildfire. And today, compare that with today, when in New York City there are approximately 24,000 restaurants. It truly is the great urban institution. And here to talk about the emergence 
of the restaurant and how it came to be so popular is Cindy LaBelle. Cindy is an assistant professor of history at Lehman College the, at the City University of New York. And she trained in United States history and is a specialist in New York City history and American urban history. She's currently completing a book on the impact of urbanization on foodways and eating patterns in the 19th century New York City. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. So how was it that rest... I mean, they they grew even greater than exponentially from the 40s to the 1860s. Absolutely. How did this all come about? Why did it come about suddenly in 1830? Well, the growth of restaurants in New York is really related to the growth of New York. So uh, restaurants really emerged to fill a need. And until people live in one place and work in another or travel a lot, there's really not that much of a need for the restaurant. Most people in the early 19th century and before that ate at home. And the options for public dining before that really are largely um, taverns. But taverns really served a traveling public much more so than the uh, public that lived in New York. Well, we, read, we, we know a lot about colonial taverns, right? Exactly, and exactly. And of course, New Yorkers did go to taverns, uh, and uh, taverns really contributed in an important way to the public life of, of colonial America and of colonial New York. But in terms of daily eating patterns, most people ate their meals at home. But in the 19th century, New York grows, and it grows really significantly. In fact, the first half of the 19th century is the period of, of uh, most growth that New York has experienced. Uh, from the beginning of the 19th century, when the population is uh, about 60,000, to the middle of the 19th century, when it's pushing a million. Amazing. And yeah. at the end of the 19th century, when New York City consolidates its five boroughs in 1898, the population reaches three million. Wow. So those people need somewhere to eat. So in I mean, we're talking in the early 19th century, I mean, New York City was really kind of all focused below Canal Street, right? That's right. Uh, up until uh, really the 1830s, uh, well, in 1811, City Hall is built, and that's at Chambers Street. And when mm-hmm. City Hall was built, they said they made the back of it out of this cheap brownstone material because they said, this building is so far north, who's ever going to see the back of it anyway? <laughs> and obviously, they were wrong. And there were more so- foresightful New Yorkers at that time, actually. And 1811 is the same year as the grid plan, where they gridded the streets of Manhattan, right. laid them out all the way up into, uh, into the 90s. So uh, there, you know, there, was, there were some people who were, who were foreseeing the growth of New York City. But they couldn't really foresee it until you had transportation that allowed people to spread. So until that happens, absolutely, Canal Street and below, uh, even um, even Chamber Street and below in the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. But once you have first the omnibuses, which are street-drawn horse carriages uh, that, that uh, see, they're like uh, uh, horse-drawn buses, uh, and then the street railroad, and eventually in the 1870s, the elevated trains, and of course the subway in the early 20th century, then you really are allow- allowing for the growth and spread of the city. And that happens over the course of the 19th century. Right. So anyone living up around 22nd Street was really in the boondocks. That was they the suburbs, really, yeah. absolutely. It was the suburbs. You know, the Dakota uh, apartment building, mm-hmm. which is in the West 70s, when it was built in the 1870s, they said it might as well be in the Dakotas. That's how it got its name, because <laughs> it was country, so far. A fine country Exactly. Home. Well, exactly. actually, I mean, if you read novels like Edith Wharton, it's filled with uh, going to their country houses, and they would be on the Upper West Side. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. That was far away. All right. So, so people started to move away from this nucleus, 
and but they still came back to this area to that area to work that's right, right. well so, uh, so they, they couldn't go home for lunch exactly exactly and so the first restaurants and actually it's a little bit confusing because the, they had a lot of different names for public freestanding public dining places which is essentially what a restaurant is not attached to a hotel or to a tavern and actually doing research on this stuff is a little bit tricky because you find that uh, if you search on the internet for or in, in databases online databases for restaurant it won't always hit because they called them sometimes eating houses, eating houses. or refectories, Wait, victualing or house. victualing <laughs> houses. You, you had that. In your yes, paper, right? exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of different names. Um, so the, uh, when they start calling them restaurants, I mean Delmonico's, they're really known. Uh, for establishing the first restaurant. But that's actually a little bit of a myth. <laughs> uh, there are restaurants before that point. They just aren't necessarily called restaurants, right. as we so now, So we're really defining restaurant as a separate freestanding dining house, eating house, as opposed to hotel dining rooms or, or boarding house. Or- that's right. And the first ta- the taverns and the first uh, hotels, even the luxury hotels in mm-hmm. New York, like the Astor House, which opens in the 1830s, they were, uh, their price... Uh, the pricing was based on you taking your all of your meals in the hotel. So it was all included in the board. Those were called American Plan Hotels. The American hotels. Plan Hotel, right. Eventually, they have European Plan Hotels, which really start to take off in the 1850s and beyond. And that means that you are paying separately for your board and your meals. And that's also where restaurants start to step in and see a... Um, market for travelers who are coming into New York sure. and want to have a place to eat other than their hotels. And then the businessmen uh, who are living on the edges of the city, which, yes, is about 22nd Street, <laughs> and commuting downtown to the Wall Street area for their jobs, and they need a place to eat because it's too, even though it's hard for us to imagine that 22nd Street is so far from Wall Street, when you're relying on street drawn uh, on horse-drawn transportation, it's actually too far to go home for work. Well, of course, even you, it took you. That's <laughs> you right. You were even today, <laughs> only a few neighborhoods away. To and it took five miles. Here, right? Exactly. Well, now it's that, and that's you know traffic. <laughs> traffic interferes, right? Um, well, you know it's it's interesting. People, I think, just assume that restaurants were always around, and especially even thinking in Paris, in Europe, thinking, oh yes, well, Paris, there were always restaurants in Paris, and that and that was just shortly before. Restaurants emerged in New York City. That's right. right. Uh, Paris really sets the model, and the restaurant emerges in Paris. And the word "restaurant" is a, is a French word, and, and meaning meaning uh, to restore uh, and or, or res- restoring. Um, and actually, that's where restaurants started out as a place where that where a restorative broth was served, um, and it took off from there. Uh, and that had to do with the guilds of Paris, and you know who was allowed to operate what kind of establishment. So mm-hmm. those sorts of distinctions were very important. But uh, they didn't Paris. come around until the very end of that's the eighteenth right, century, the late eighteenth right? century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we weren't that far behind. No, definitely. <laughs> and although it, it is it is telling that the first restaurants that were open in the United States were mainly opened by. Europeans, French French people, and uh, Delmonico's was opened by by Swiss brothers, the mm-hmm. Delmonico brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, now you say there was a bit of a myth on that that they were. I mean, they've always been touted as the the first uh, restaurant, but that really wasn't true. I mean, there were others. That's that right. Yeah, yeah, there were, and and even uh, although we New, York, New Yorkers don't like to admit this, New York didn't necessarily even start the first restaurant. And we uh, we think that the first restaurant actually was in Boston, uh-huh. uh, started by a Frenchman named Julien. Um, and he start, he opened a restaurant there uh, in the in the um, not actually that long after the restaurant started to open in, in Paris. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, Boston was a real you know a, a real metropolis of the, yes. in its own right. Right, right? that's right. Yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I you know, when I was doing some research for the show, I noticed that there were a lot of 
some of the ephemera that uh, has been collected were some coupons or you know a ticket mm-hmm. valid for a meal, mm-hmm. and it was like. 15 cents at Delmonico's. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, the, wasn't the average meal something around 12 and a half cents or something like that? Yeah, well, the the the, uh, the kind of um, uh, restaurants, eating houses that opened uh, early in the 1820s and 1830s to service the businessmen uh, were known as six-penny eating houses. Six-penny. Well, that's uh, be- what it cost, right? Yes. So actually, Delmonico's was expensive. If it cost 12 cents to get a meal, that was twice what you would pay at a six-penny eating house. And, uh-huh. you know, even in the... At that point, you know, laborers earned about even skilled workers earned about $500 a week. So, I mean, $500 a year. year. So that was actually um, much more money than, <laughs> than, it would, than we would consider it today. Yeah, sure. Uh, you taught, well, the, these six penny houses and then going up to 15 cents, we'll talk about that. That's a whole other um, discussion we'll do later in the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, you talk a lot about the urbanization and and consumer culture and how restaurants really influenced, well, the whole public sphere. In, in fact, um, uh, who was it? You you mentioned somebody in your paper who um, Habermas, I believe, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. talked about this uh, structuring of the public sphere mm-hmm. and restaurants mm-hmm. played a great role in that. Talk a little bit about how what restaurants' role in structuring the the public sphere. Yeah, well, right. I, this is. Uh, uh, a, a very academic conversation with Habermas and the idea of the public sphere as a place that uh, Habermas actually studied coffee houses in England, and which were like the taverns of the 18th century. And um, uh, they were places where, uh, where a whole public discourse arose um, and, and a whole um, way of challenging actually the, uh, the powers that be uh, emerge so that middle-class people are, or, or, uh, or, you know, um, regular guys, right, would, would meet in these places and develop these these conversations and ways of, of interacting and create this public sphere that then eventually was used to supplant. Uh, so the taverns are, are an example of mm-hmm. that, right, where, where in the colonial era, taverns were places of gathering and places of exchanging information. An early Iowa caucus. Right? Exactly, <laughs> right. And eventually they became places where the revolution, the American Revolution, was really planned and articulated. Uh-huh. So in the 19th century, you see a similar thing happening in the restaurants. I mean, not so much in terms of them being revolutionary, but in, the, in terms of them being a place where uh, the public sphere is developed, where people are interacting with people who are not necessarily like them. That's particularly important in the growing city where people are increasingly anonymous. It's hard for us to imagine going from a city uh, of, you know, just a, a few, about 60,000 people to uh, over a million in one person's lifetime. Yeah, and that so, growth is amazing. Yeah, so that that sort of ordering of behaviors and interactions in public spaces was very important. And the restaurants played that role in part because a lot of different kinds of people really did eat in public, public dining places, spaces. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you think about that, that before this time, meals were taken in private in their own homes. I mean, except for the traveling salesmen and the, and the businessmen in the right. in the you know, the boarding houses or... That's right. And socializing yeah, has, of course, always happened beyond, around meals and mm-hmm. rituals have always taken place beyond, around meals. That goes back to ancient times. But what we see in the 19th century is a real commercialization of that process. Not unlike the marketplaces of ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, right. I mean, that's that's where they decided all the, uh, the political powers. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. 
what kind of food? Let's talk about the food. What was being served in these restaurants in that era? Well, that, you're right. And that, of course, depends on the era that we're talking about as well, right? So that uh, Delmonico's, as an example, uh, when Delmonico's starts out, it is a pretty modest affair. When we think about Delmonico's, those who know about Delmonico's, really tend to think about this sort of opulent, gilded age space of Diamond Jim Brady and, you know, uh, hundreds, of th- hundreds of dollars. Yeah, which is persisted today as a, as a very well-known steakhouse. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Actually, uh, a friend of mine just went there uh, <laughs> for dinner recently. They got a gift certificate there. Um, so, I'm yes. sure it wasn't 15 cents. Exactly. It was much more than 15 cents. <laughs> exactly. So, so, but in the in the early days, Delmonico's was more of like a coffee house. Um, they served cakes and sweets and and then meals to the business crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the short order houses that emerged at that time as well in the 1830s and 1840s um, are not known for their food. They're really known really for getting people in and getting them out and serving them quickly. They're like fast food joints, essentially. Hey, but they, they, they had it down. That's right. right. They did. And they said that people that, you know, they would serve five covers in 10 minutes and the tables turned within a half an hour, you would see four different parties seated at the same table. And the food was pre-prepared. And uh, you would you had a very limited choice. And it was a lot of roast beef and potatoes. And uh uh, you know, maybe a couple other entree options, maybe mm-hmm. shepherd's pie. A lot of them were on this sort of English model um, of cuisine, whereas Delmonico's was more on the French model, and that increases as the 19th mm. century progresses. Kind of like it now that they still have down south, the meat and three. I mean, you right, choose your right. main course. Meat and and pot- your, exactly. Yeah, and meat and sides. potatoes, or yeah, maybe another side, and you would order it, and then it would come to your table within minutes of ordering, and they had waiters who would call the uh, order out, and then they had runners who would grab it from the kitchen and bring it to the table and drop it, and then all the observers who, who went to these short order houses in the 1830s and 1840s uh, were kind of horrified, actually, by what they <laughs> saw there. Because just like they talk about food habits today, you know, and, and people in, in New York being way too busy to pay attention to what they're eating and just rushing through lunch and bolting their food is exactly the kinds of, of, um, of descriptions that you would see in the 1830s and the 1840s. And definitely, definitely, they uh, often said that the, uh, foreign travelers, British travelers, and especially would say that they could understand why why the United States was a, a nation of dyspeptics <laughs> of people with stomach problems because they were just eating their food so quickly so that they could get out and get in, engaged in the business. Busy, 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 and visitors to New York today still say. That, I mean, that everyone everyone looks like they're in a hurry. Exactly. Everyone looks the like they have some place to go. Right. right, the rush, the busy, rush, the rush. Um, yeah, well, in in reading. Um, uh, Alice Ross, who who has a wonderful website called Hearth to Hearth, and she's an open fire cooking, but she's done a lot of studies of the old boarding house mm-hmm. meals and oh, the old yes. and uh, you know the food. That's why I asked you <laughs> with a with a bit of a twinkle. You know what was the food like? I mean, talking on at on end about the boiled dinners. You know the New England boiled dinners. A lot of that. You know boring food but yeah uh, the boarding house is really interesting you know it's uh, there there is some scholarship on it uh, mm-hmm. but there a lot of people don't know about the boarding houses that these really uh, because the cities like new york especially was growing so quickly but other cities as well uh, they couldn't keep up this is where you start to have a housing crunch in new york and housing is very expensive and a lot of you know just starting out middle class people couldn't afford to start their own household and so they moved into boarding houses and boarding houses really housed a lot of people mm-hmm. and they also 
fed a lot of people in the 19th century. And they were, yes, often, off, very often, they were critiqued by journalists and observers, and especially by domestic advocates who preferred that people actually start their own homes yes. <laughs> um, for the awful food that, that the boarding house lady served. And she was really a character who was known for serving very cheap food, right, uh, right? trying to get out as much as she could with the least amount of input of cash. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about class uh, stratifications and gender distinctions in restaurants. Great. You might have heard this before. I know I have. This song is called Alice's Restaurant It's about Alice And the restaurant But Alice's Restaurant Was never the name of a restaurant That was always just the name of this song And I guess that Well that's probably why I still call this song Alice's Restaurant You can get anything you want At Alice's Restaurant you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. I wasn't gonna sing the song tonight, or this decade, but I realized sometime earlier this year that. It had been 26 years since this come out as a movie and, and it was two years before that that it came out as a record And it was two years ago on the record Which means it was like 30 Thanksgivings ago 30 years ago on Thanksgiving When my friend and I decided to go up and visit Alice at the restaurant But Alice didn't used to live in a restaurant She used to live in the church nearby the restaurant in the bell tower with her husband Ray and Fatcha the dog and and we are back talking about restaurants with Cindy Lobel uh, actually the emergence of restaurants in New York City New York City being the gold standard of course not, of course. <laughs> not fair because now then we heard that all those all those thoughts were squashed when you said it was probably Boston that started right. the first although restaurant. New York certainly perfected it <laughs> well I, you know to say that the, that the restaurants increase in more than exponentially, from 1830, having one restaurant to all of a sudden in the 18, mid-1860s having 5,000 restaurants. Mm-hmm. That is quite amazing. And these restaurants varied in terms of what they served. And now we hear the price they charged. We were saying 15 cents was, uh, uh, you know, the higher end of the scale compared to a six-penny restaurant. And this in- indeed created a bit of a class distinction, no doubt. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I think I would say that restaurants reflected the class distinctions in New York as they continued to develop. Mm. So when you have a handful, um, there uh, is there's not as much of a of a sort of hierarchy of restaurants. But as they emerge, definitely you really see. Um, a class hierarchy emerge in terms of restaurants, in terms of who's eating where, 
So this is no, interesting. And not unlike today. Exactly. I'm, you know, just right. like today. And this is, in fact, an interesting thing also in terms of the public culture aspect is that one reason why restaurants are an important index to the public culture of New York in the 19th century is because so many people are eating in restaurants. That doesn't mean they're all eating in the same restaurants. Mm. So uh, you can see you see very cheap restaurants. Actually, they, that's how they bill themselves by the middle of the 19th century, cheap eating houses. And you see very, very expensive and luxurious restaurants or first-class establishments. And that's when Delmonico's really is distinguishing itself by the mid to late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Charles Dickens famously comes to New York in the 1840s, comes to the U.S. in the 1840s and, and is not very um, complimentary <laughs> about the dining <laughs> options in, in the United States. Uh-huh. But then he comes back in the 1860s and he raves about Delmonico's. And that's really when Delmonico's develops its reputation as the pinnacle of fine dining. And that does distinguish, that is where Delmonico distinguishes itself, not for being necessarily the first restaurant, but for being the restaurant that really does introduce fine dining to the United States. Uh, so now to also describe to, to, view, to listeners what, what we're really talking about in that period of time, let's say the early um, 1800s, these were not fancy white tablecloth uh, comfortable establishments. I mean, they were still on the order of, of the tavern model. That's right? right. When Delmonico's opens in the 1830, well, the late 1820s, 1830s, it's really, uh, yeah, wood, ta- pine tables and chairs. And uh, yeah, they're not as concerned, actually, about the way that the restaurant looks as concerned about the kind of uh, conspicuous display mm. uh, that really becomes a hallmark of the first class establishments by the mid 19th century. Uh, and the hotel restaurants, that they start to open too, and they really also, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, uh, there's a big hotel boom in New York. They really are, like the St. Nicholas Hotel or the Fifth Avenue Hotel, they really are going insane in Super terms of, lux. yes, yeah. the way that they, the kinds of materials that they're using and the way that they're they're decorating. And and then uh, by the 1850s, well, 18, you start in the 1830s, 1840s, you start to have some restaurants that cater specifically to ladies. And, they that's, and that's what I wanted to bring up, I, because not only is there a class stratification and distinction, but there is definitely a gender distinction that Absolutely. went on. Absolutely. Right? And gender and class are so closely tied together uh, in the 19th century, the way that uh, people act and what marks you as middle class or what marks you as elite or what marks you as working class or what marks you as um, unrespectable, right? Or genteel versus non-genteel or respectable versus unrespectable. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's so much about the mix of gender and class interacting. Um, And there would want a woman, I mean, women would just not go out in public alone to dine. Ladies. 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 Would not go out and eat in eat in public. Period. I mean, much less you know dining alone and not. That's un- right. I mean, you couldn't even go into a restaurant unescorted without being considered to be of ill repute. Exactly. Right? That's right. And that definitely. I mean, ladies here is definitely a term of ladies. social distinction because uh, women uh, might dine out, but if women who are concerned about their reputations, middle class women uh, especially. Um, who uh, didn't want to have a taint on them. It was very important that they not be, uh, that their their behavior in public was very prescribed. And uh, restaurants definitely, restaurants, often uh, they served liquor, or it was a fine line between a restaurant and a saloon or a bar. And uh, that caused all kinds of problems for ladies who were concerned about their reputation. Well, and and some of those eating houses were, had reputations for being pretty bawdy. Exactly. I mean, you know. And oh yeah, the you behaviors. said you, and you said what did you you said something in, in I think in in your paper about 
uh, spitting on the floor and mean and nasty. Mean yeah, and nasty. Oh, cheap and nasty. Cheap and nasty. Cheap and nasty. Yeah. That's cheap right. Nasty. That's right. Yes, they were not spaces for ladies. And even, uh, I mean, women of, of it was very unusual to see women in, in those kinds of restaurants. Anyway. Um, uh, sometimes you would see one as a cashier. Actually, the Delmonicos had a ca- had a female cashier, um, which is unusual because in that you know in the in the mid nineteenth century, women were really not working in the public workspace. They were working at home by and large. Right? Well, uh, working class women, of course, were working out and about. But the it, the kinds of the concerns about respectabilities and gender mores uh, about respectability and gender mores really uh, was about middle class formation. So it didn't mm. apply as much to working class women. I mean, you certainly saw working class women out in the streets. And uh, and working uh, mm-hmm. out and about um, uh, uh, in in really desperate uh, jobs, often uh, women, uh, the lady of the streets, right? I mean, the whole mm-hmm. idea of uh, of of the prostitute or uh, or street scavengers, right? Which was a, a unfortunately a, a an occupation for women, Pickers. working class women, yeah. exactly in nineteenth century New York. They were they were out in public by nature of their jobs, and so uh, that also sort of spelled out the public uh, or women's behaviors in public as being um, sort of dangerous territory. So middle class women certainly went out and they shopped and they did charity work and they rode on the omnibuses. And by the 1830s, you start to have some restaurants that emerged that call themselves ladies' restaurants that are really there, or ladies' saloons even. Saloon didn't mean uh, a bar yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were really places where where uh, the proprietors tried to p- create a space where women felt comfortable, where ladies felt comfortable. And they did that partly, largely, actually, through the very f- lush appointments that they used. They really tried to replicate the middle-class parlor in the public space. So you had, and, and when they talked about them, when they were advertised or when they were uh, discussed, when they when a new one opened, like Taylor's uh, was a very famous one, uh, it would, it, it often would, well, several times they reopened, they, they renovated and reopened. And they were very public events and they talked not about the food, mm. but about all of the money that was spent on furnishing it and all the beautiful uh, furnishings and uh, the curtains and the marble and the mirrors and the gilding and that was a very important way of distinguishing these places as places where women could feel comfortable. Well, in fact, and then you mentioned they didn't talk about the food, but the food, in fact, confectionaries were that was a whole genre of of dining establishment that was catered to ladies. Yes, right? confectionaries and ice creameries. Ice and creamers. ice creamery was a place actually where that uh, women only liked sweet things. That's right. right. <laughs> Sweets were very much associated with women. Somebody asked me recently a really interesting question about when. Ice creams and sweets become things that are associated not necessarily by, with by gender, but more by age. And when when ice cream, for example, becomes a, ch- a children's treat, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because in the nineteenth century, it definitely was. It was, of course, it was associated with children, but it was really associated with with ladies. And and the ice creameries were ladies' restaurants, and they didn't serve liquor, and they also served other things, omelets, and. Uh, Oysters were very, very popular all over the place, and uh, other, uh, you know, salads and other sort of light fare for for the ladies. Well, that, that's I mean, we are unfortunately running out of time, but that is just a whole other discussion about how, and it, it didn't. I mean, that sort of women dining alone in public did not really change a whole lot until until the early sixties. Yes, know, that's 1960s. right. It's really the twentieth yeah. century, yeah. That's yeah, in the nineteenth century that's not seen very yeah. much. Although for very elite women who don't really worry about their respectability, <laughs> you start to see it a little bit more in the late nineteenth yeah. century. Well it's intriguing information and uh, the history of of 
New York City is always very intriguing, and American cities in general. Yes. Know, urban history, I just I find it fascinating. And the fact that restaurants how, now are just, you know, we just take them for granted. That's right. And that's right. But they have a history. Yes, that's sometimes right. Sometimes we forget. And women walking in alone, uh, you know, who we don't care. We walk right. in alone and eat. And we then, can maintain our virtue that's even, right. that's right. <laughs> even eating in public. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for joining me thank today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing more from you when we, when hopefully you've got some um, a book out on yes, this. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks. And thank you for listening. Again, I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.